welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Janita Stanton. We have Reginald Perryman, Shaka Williams, and we are Tasari. This is the There's Something About Real Estate podcast where we discuss all things real estate. And today we have a special guest with us, Natalie Reed, OP of a few Keller Williams in the area. (laughs) (laughs) The OP, the OG OP. (laughs) So, Natalie, you want to join in here and introduce yourself? Yeah. First of all, thank you for having me. This is so fun. (laughs) I'm looking forward to spending time with you guys as always. But um, yeah, uh, KW, the Woodward Corridor, It's um, I've been a part of it for almost 20 years now, which is mind-blowing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I started my real estate career with Keller Williams, actually. Okay. So, yeah, back in 20, and uh, oh, geez, 2001. Wow. So that before the crash and you survived through that. Oh, when I started, Reggie, (laughs) it was, yeah, you put the sign in the ground. If it wasn't sold in two days, you were like, oh, my gosh, what happened? I priced it wrong. (laughs) Right. Kind of similar. Right now. Living right now. (laughs) Deja vu is full circle. Right. So, um, but I did live through the crash. Right. And um, it's learned a ton through that. And I'm excited to be able to bring that to our teams and our offices um, as we have an impending shift at some point. I think yeah. we're all starting to feel I, yeah. a little bit. So. Mm-hmm, whatever it is. Yeah. Can, can you tell us a little bit, how did you get started in real estate? Yeah. So I actually spent almost 10 years in the corporate world. I ran okay. a national sales team for a marketing firm, started out in Chicago and got promoted back to Troy, Michigan. I was a manufacturer's rep and because Kmart headquarters right. was here, ended up back in Michigan, which is actually home to me. So <laughs> I was excited to move home and have the opportunity to purchase my first house and have a garage. That's a huge (laughs) luxury after moving from the city. um, I had moved to Chicago right out of college with $100 in my pocket. And so um, it's funny to think about. My parents dropped me off. Cell phones didn't Mm. exist. They left me in this big city and I covered three states and I had the big Atlas roadmap and I somehow (laughs) figured out where to go. And now my kids can't get to their school without, you know, map quest oh. on their phone. Mm-hmm. So right. yeah. <laughs> it's really crazy. So um, I had done that for 10 years and I learned a, a lot about leadership. Okay. Um, it was heavy leadership training, um, sales training. And then when I moved back, I started buying rental properties. It just so happened I purchased my first home got three roommates. I was living in Royal right. Oak and it was oh, my okay. early 20s and got some roommates right. and they were paying my mortgage. Mm. I'm like, oh my goodness, <laughs> the bathroom's a bit cozy and right. my mortgage is paid for. Mm. I'm going to go buy another house. Right. So I had a great mentor at the at where I worked in my previous career at, at Crossmark. And so um, my mentor kind of walked me through having tenants right. and um, never grew up anything business related or real estate. My dad is he's an engineer. My mom's a retired school teacher. So right. n- no business whatsoever. They thought I was crazy. What? First, you're buying a house in Royal Oak. Are you kidding? And then secondly, you're going to have roommates and tenants. So anyway, it um, I continued to purchase additional properties right. and built up to a few and started flipping a few houses and ultimately turned my hobby into a full-time career and cool. haven't looked back. Yeah, cool. So, so you mentioned the um, so you're the OP at two offices in Royal Oak and Birmingham. Yes, right? 
I, um, before you answer, what is an OP? Okay, great <laughs> question. We do have our own language. Every right. every company does. It's part right. of the culture, right? So OP stands for operating partner, okay. and every KW office has um, someone who was placed as an OP to gather the talent to launch a market center. That's during the launching phase. Okay. And then when offices are up and running, it is the job of the OP to hire, train, and hold the team leader accountable okay. to run the day-to-day operations. So if you liken it to a large corporation, right. um, you know, take, take, take a Google. They have a mm-hmm. board of directors, and right. they have a chairman of the board. That's somewhat how an OP operates, and then they are responsible for hiring the CEO that really runs the organization. Right. So the investors of a market center are like board members, Mm -hmm. and then you have the OP that leads that investor group, and then we have team leaders that run the day-to-day operations and are responsible for hiring their teams to run the offices. So... The question Janine had was um, the two offices. There's the Birmingham Market Center, which also expanded into Bloomfield. I'm going north and working my way south. (laughs) (laughs) It's just how my brain works. And then we have the Royal Oak Market Center, which is KW Metro. Um, And we have most recently launched a business center to KW Metro, which is called KW City. Cool. So (laughs) down in Detroit. Right. Right at at Kirby and Woodward. So come see us. Cool. So the the way you were explaining it, because I don't think a lot of brokerages understand, they probably do from the franchise level, but the individual offices, a lot of them are not set up with that like corporate structure pretty much. So you have your OP, you have, because you kind of named everybody except the broker, mm-hmm. right? So within that structure, you have a managing broker, correct? Yeah. Okay. And and that's a great question, Reggie, right. just because so many people in the world of real estate, you right. hear of the broker owner. Right. And... They were multiple hats. They're overseeing the transactions. They're hiring right. associates. They're they're handling issues that come, you know, every day. Right. And our offices, because we're a capping model, we're designed to be a large office so we can provide all the services that we do. Right. And um, we do have a, a managing broker for each location. Okay. And so really they're um they work hand in hand with right. The OP, the team leader, it's almost like we have this triangle, right. and um, they handle the issues that, that come across, and they're in charge of education as far as the legal aspect of everything. Cool. In, in terms of camaraderie, do you feel like um, the, well, the entire brand, the KW brand, maybe um, has a high level of camaraderie due to the structure? Like the organizational structure? Well, I think um, the answer is yes. And I left out the most critical piece that is the glue to all of that between the associates and the staff in the office. And that's our agent leadership council. Something completely unique in our industry is that we have a group of individuals that represent the voice of the agents in our office, and it's the agent leadership council. And that group gets together once a month. And we talk about policies and guidelines within the office. We talk about different initiatives and needs and wants. We have different committees within that council. And that really is the heart of the office and um, really 
what drives us is to how we operate and different pivots that we make as a leadership team, getting feedback from the office and, and they're involved in the decisions. We are a servant leadership. We are here for our associates right. and that's the platform that we use to get feedback. Cool. You're part so, of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things, so a lot of times when we're comparing, cause agents always ask, why should I go to a franchise company versus a independent small boutique type brokerage. So there's um, there's a little bit more um, risk with being just an individual broker because you're wearing so many hats. You're managing the agents. You're cutting the checks. You're holding the EMDs. Yeah, you don't have more. like the accounting department. Everything yeah. is separate. So. It's probably more efficient to run it that way with the structure like KWS. Yeah, I think right. uh, I think the advantage is having a team as large as we do. That right. if if we're um, replacing someone right. or there's an opportunity and we grow and we need to add an additional person to the team, right. there are many hands make for light work. Okay. So I think when there's a shift with the team, right. it's easier to manage when there's one person. When you're a broker owner wearing all the hats, if you're out sick, the, the show <laughs> stops. Yeah. Yeah. So, Scalability. You know, yeah. Able to scale. Yeah. And we cross train. So everybody, you know, if something happens, oh, my goodness. I mean, what we just right. went through in the past two mm -hmm. years, I have yeah. to tell you, there were days I was working the front desk. And wow, what a blast. Right. I actually was excited. I knew how to transfer a phone call. But right. <laughs> those are the things you do. Right. And um so I think I think that part is really helpful with having a large team, and it allows each team member to really right. become an expert in their craft right. and, and really bring the best service for our associates. And the reality is, with offices that are as large as ours are, right. not everybody is going to vibe with every single individual. Right. When you have that whole variety of personalities, yeah. it, it allows people to really have um, a closer connection, possibly. Maybe there's someone that they vibe with better than someone right. else. Cool. I want to talk a little bit about um, success in the industry because you are a broker um, and then you've been in business since 01 and it's 2022. And so we've been through several different, you know, transitions with like four at this yeah, point. Market, well, we're coming yeah, into a four. Shift. Yeah. Yeah. Like, can you explain su success and sustainability? Like, you know, maybe from like each point, like some key points or things that you feel like are important to stay afloat? Yeah, some of the phases that we've lived through. I would say first and foremost is um, be be fungible. Be ready to, um, you know, Gary Keller teaches us always operate in the, in the market that you're moving into, not that the one that you're in. Right. So I think a huge piece of that is really just the awareness of, where are we now and right. where are we heading and get ahead of it. So I tell you what, I had my best year in 2009 because I was the first person in my office that did a short sale. We didn't even know what that meant. Right. I mean, well, and that was 2008, but right. by 2009, I was in my best year because in 2008, late 7, 08, I heard about the short sale process and yeah. I thought, Boy, I'm going to learn about this. I'm this is an issue, and I had heard about other agents turning down listings right. because it was a short sale. And <laughs> I'm like, wait, you're turning down a listing? Why would you? Well, right. you don't know if it's going to sell, or it might take too long, and you have to do all this paperwork right. and you know work with the lenders. And so when I investigated it, I, I 
just wrap my arms around it, and I was one of those people, oh, you didn't get my 80-page fax? I'll send it one more time. I'm not letting you off the hook. We're going to figure this out. So um, a big key is being open to wanting to learn and grow and get ahead of the market. And once I had those relationships and I got in the portals and I could speak the language, Mm -hmm. I was getting listings like crazy. And I thought it was awesome from the aspect, I mean, when you don't have to negotiate commissions. You walk in, this is a fee, this is what we do. You get the yeah. paperwork and you move on your way. I, it was nothing to be afraid of. And we were <laughs> helping people. I mean, it, it, yep. there was so much gratification in helping people at a, at a huge time of need. Yeah, so mm-hmm. It got to the point, because short sales, it got to the point where the banks, if they couldn't do a loan mod, mm-hmm. they would try that first before foreclosure. Mm-hmm. Then the next step would be a short mm-hmm. sale. And the banks, right on your application, they would ask for the MLS number. Because mm-hmm, you got so a list a realtor, It was like, <clears throat> what better time to, than be in the market when the banks are saying you have to list your property? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right to mm-hmm. do a short sale, so I mean that was I can see mm-hmm. why that would be. A so year I just want to translate that a little bit. So, <laughs> so because you, in order back then, in order to do a short sale, you had to be in default already. You had right. to have listed the property and already have tried to sell it, and right. then you could start the having those sale. conversations. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So what what year did you become a owner investor in Keller Williams? So I was with KW. Oh, boy. Just a couple years. It was 2000. We the KW Metro, which back in the day was KW Woodward. We had some DBA name changes um, when we move locations off of Woodward into downtown Royal Oak. (laughs) But um, that became it was 2004. So I had been with Keller Williams three years, still living in Royal Oak. And I just fell in love with the model. I couldn't get over even that early in KW world, I right. mean, there were only, when I came to the company, there were about 5,000 associates. We have over 180,000 now. Wow. So there were 5,000 associates, right. and I just, the the platform and the culture of collaboration and right. the level of learning base and how open-door policy it was, right. that's the company that I actually came from in the corporate world, right. which is interesting because it's not always <laughs> like that in the corporate world. I, I had loved that, and it's why I was only at one company prior to coming to KW. Um, So I I felt at home with that. And I thought, oh my gosh, we need to have one of these in Royal Oak. (laughs) Like, this is crazy. So um, I started getting a group together and I wasn't the first operating partner. Pete Costa was our first operating partner, but I got it. I I was the instigator. Okay. So we got it rolling, and we opened a market center in 2006. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't believe it. We right. had a big, beautiful new build-out of a space, right. and it, the market came mm-hmm. to a screeching halt. Right. You were the so, propeller, and how many people were looking at you like, what did you get us into? Yeah, right. yeah. So, so when you say you got a group together, um, what exactly does that mean? Like a group of investors? To, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so a launching group of investors, what they do is um, you're looking for people that are influential in the market that can help attract other talent to open an office. There's a a whole process to opening a KW, and the whole concept is lead with revenue. I mean, why own a business if it's not profitable? And people have walked before you. They've, you know, learned from them. And the the system is really designed to open day one and be profitable. Okay. And, And we were... <laughs> and then it slowed down. Right. <laughs> and then we were profitable again. Right. So how did you live through that? 
Oh, we we uh, first and foremost, you cut expenses. Yeah, we had uh, investors doing jobs in the office that typically are salaried positions, and everyone just rolled up their sleeves, and you do what you have to do to get through right. it. So, but really, it um, you know. What attracts people to Keller Williams is there's a system and a model, and we have a process for teaching people that. Right. And ultimately, it's the level of collaboration. Okay. And so we were off and running. We kept growing during that time. In fact, during that last shift, KW went from being like the eighth company in the country to number one by the time we came out of the shift. Wow. Okay. So. What do you what do you feel like um, we're feeling currently as far as a shift? Like, what do you are are you do you have any projections? Yeah, you know, there I I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot to say about that because it's fascinating. We right. all you know we're we're living by the information we get off our phones and the media, right. and when you look at the statistics, they tell and the trends they tell a little bit different of a story than we're hearing on a daily basis. So right. I love that we're doing things like this because right. we need to get the message out there that right. there's still so much opportunity. And it's funny, yeah. the, the little bit of, well, <laughs> I'm going to say a little bit when you look at a 50-year perspective, the little bit of increases we've had in interest rate. Right. We still have a really strong market. It's real estate yep. is still where you want to put your money mm-hmm. when you look historically over right. time. The a couple things that jump out right away are in the last bubble, because everyone's like, oh, is the yeah, bubble gonna burst? What's gonna happen? <laughs> in the last bubble, we were increasing in values and above the national the, the typical trend line right. of sales and appreciation for five years. We're actually only above our typical appreciation rates right now. Right. We're two years above the trend okay. line. So basically things were kind of going out of to simplify it, they were going out of control for five years. Right. We're only like a year and a half to two years out of control. So right. this mm-hmm. at this market and the appreciation could still be go- and sales volume can still go on for another two to three years. Right. So the people that saw rates go up and they're freaking out, which <laughs> it, it is a shock. There's right. I'm not gonna say it's not, but their property values are gonna keep going up. They're gonna. There are still we're four million houses short mm-hmm. and nationwide. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's right. still a great time to buy, and they're not gonna go up at the same rate that they did over the past eighteen months. Right. You know, we were twenty to thirty percent in some markets of home appreciation values, right. whereas next year it'll or the next twelve months it'll likely be closer to eight or ten. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's um, what we project. I want to talk a little bit about that. Um. So I, I feel like over the last few months we've been like, oh, it's a short. It's just a shortage. Now, over the last, I would say, like, maybe 10 days, I've been, you know, searching on the MLS and looking and seeing what's going on, and I'm seeing a lot of pickup. In inventory? In inventory. But it's probably the spring, because of spring, summer. You know, a lot of sellers, Mm -hmm. they're under the impression Mm -hmm. that this is the best time to list when it's really... Not always but the best time. what I'm wondering is, wouldn't that be a contradiction to shortage? No matter what. So the, no, I, I think it, there it it feels like a shortage. Right. I I've been saying that for a few months. Right. When in reality, it's just been quick turnover. Yeah. Is what it's yep. been. The the volume is there. It just 
feels like. But I guess what I'm saying is, like, a few months ago, so I agree with the quick turnover. But also searching and looking, it just was not as many houses in different areas to show in certain price points or whatever. Mm -hmm. But now if you go on there, you can, like, you go each area, you know, wherever your people want to be at. It's like a lot of how it's a lot of houses and they are still turning over quick, mm-hmm. right. but it's more it's, you know, like your client may say, well, I want to see these two. And you're like, oh, man, these two are getting ready to be gone. But <laughs> right. now when you're looking at it, it's like, OK, those two might be gone. But shoot, did they did you see these three or four? Right. Right here. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but it's still a shortage, but it's though. Still, it's still short. In some areas, you went from 18 buyers per house, but now it's down to like 10 or 11. So technically, it's still a shortage because they're turning over so quick. Mm-hmm. They're coming on going off the market. So we're gonna be a few months away, and they're gonna be like, "Yeah, uh, I don't really think it's a shortage." (laughs) I don't don't think that is possible because we are. So those are these are facts. The facts are we're four million plus short of of houses. We are. Yeah, people are still paying above Mm -hmm. asking price Mm -hmm. until we cut some of that. You have to have the inventory increase, the interest rate increase, and you have to have people to say, "I'm not paying more. I'm not competing." And you have to have homes sit on the market longer for it to really have a full impact. Right now, it's still flying off the shelf. And but in order for that to happen, people still you, you still have to have somewhere to live. Right. 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 So they still we, those people have to get settled somewhere. Right. You know what I mean. So I don't see that happening for years. I don't think. Yeah. I don't think that's gonna happen for years. I have heard people talking about. Well, they were getting 20 offers on all their listings, and right. now there's five. Like, yeah. oh, <laughs> there's right. only because five. Because you only can sell a house to one person. <laughs> right. right. Legally, you yeah. can. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. right. yeah. So I got a question, too. So we're talking from a broker-owner standpoint, what could a broker do to kind of prepare their their staff and their team for a shift? Because the brokers carry all the burden of the overhead. And how, not just from an agent perspective, but the actual broker. Yeah. Um, So from a brokerage standpoint, I mean, we're, you look at cutting costs, you know, where can we, okay, if... If you have cleaning come in three times a week, do you maybe look at two times a week? You know, we're getting premium coffee. Do we go to, you know, a Costco brand? You're like, (laughs) well, no, it's whatever the agents want. Those are great ALC conversations. But it's fascinating when you go over your P&L and you go over every line item, how much sneaks in there? And, you know, even agents need to start doing Mm -hmm. that. You know, write down, do you really need to have right now Netflix and Hulu and Paramount and 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 right. you know maybe <laughs> just maybe right. we, we got, I just right. got one of my credit cards off. I just said, you know what? Just I lost it. Right. <laughs> but you know when we it, we you get right. everyone gets a little fat and happy, and we right. were all running so fast. You yep. just didn't pay attention to some of those things, and now right. might be the time. So it's really difficult to take any budget and say go slash thirty percent. But what I would encourage everyone to do, and we're doing this from an office perspective, right. is start with 10%. 
do it first, comb, comb over all your expenses. Can right. you cut out 10%? And guess what? 60 days later, can you do it again? Right. And so those are, those are things everyone should, people not even in the business should be doing that. There's no question that right. interest rates are, there's going to be an effect, you know, right. The, the so those are some of the conversations that I'm hearing. So I've talked to a few of, you know, investor friends and things like that. And the question that was posed to me just recently was like, people only have so much money. So the gas just went up, we're $4 and a quarter. Um, the interest rates just went up to like, what, five and a quarter. And now the housing prices are up, up, up. And so the question becomes, well, how much money do people actually have? Yeah. So they're basically saying it's not sustainable. Well, they have to buy less than what they were originally. So if you were originally going to buy a $300,000 home, now you buy one for two fifty to adjust for all your cost of living. Because you mm. still have to have somewhere to live. Exactly. Like at the end, yeah. So your house is the most important, the single most important bill that you have. Right. So I all mean, that other stuff, the gas, the car, you, you might figure out another way to get to work. You may start carpooling, but yeah. you're still going to have to have somewhere to live. Period. I mean, a great point. I mean, that's the only reason why I'm in real estate. I was taught all my life that, um, you know, a person is always going to need a house. Mm -hmm. But for a person like myself as well, I have to have my car. I will almost live out of my car (laughs) before I let my, you know. So, your electric car. (laughs) Your electric car. And no, that's crazy because I literally, so, you know, I drive big-ass SUV, <laughs> and I'm, like, at the light earlier, and I'm like, I got to get a Tesla <laughs> or a, some sort of Civic hybrid. I don't know, but something that's electric. But right. I'm just wondering, like, how many of these conversations, like, people are actually having because um, the cost for a lot of people is becoming really hard. So I'm not saying mm-hmm. that they're not going to buy the houses because they have to have some place to live. And I don't have... You know, a lot of I hear people saying, "No, not right now. This market is crazy." Okay, well, wait twenty years. No, no. wait <laughs> right. one year. You already waited. You're not going to be able to. If your your rent is going to be way more than no, what yeah. it costs. No, yeah. When I say wait twenty right. years, I mean it ain't oh, changing no right. time soon. Right, right, right. 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 Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look over the past fifty years at normal, typical home appreciation prices, they pretty much are on target for keeping they up are. with inflation right. at four percent a year. So. Right. If you wait, you are going to pay more. And right. so there are other great options out there. I know those are conversations we get to have with our clients all the time. There right. are arms. Like, who's talked about an arm in the in last years. three years? I, like, I it wasn't even in your vocabulary. Right. recently with an arm, and I was, like, almost, like, clutching my pearls. <laughs> but she was okay with it. I'm like, do you understand what you just did? Because mm. that was a lot of things that, you know, like, um, people in the industry were accused back in the day of putting people in arms and the people not understanding the arm. And she's right. like, no, I understand. But right. you're seeing it come back. Yeah, it's coming back, and it's coming back strong. And the other thing is, I mean, you can get five, ten-year arm. The reality is the average homeowner in America lives there nine years. That's the average. So even if it expires and you end up paying more at the end of that arm, chances are it'd be interesting to run some pro formas, and most Mm -hmm. loan officers will do that for someone. Like, Like, no, tell your your clients to set their alarm. (laughs) (laughs) Right, sell sell my house now, call Reggie. (laughs) Shameless plug. Right. Anyway, back to Natalie. (laughs) (laughs) Quick, Quick question. So talking about, like, the independent brokerages, right? And we always talk about, like, building a team, independent brokerage, or um, having a franchise 
company like KW? Because, like, the franchise, you have to pay money to KW, and you still have to manage your office. So an independent broker necessarily doesn't have that overhead. But is there... What are the benefits to being with the franchise? Is it like the support or what is it? Oh, there there are several things. Um, So we are seeing a trend of independent brokerages folding in with KWs. Right. Um, And we have new tools in our toolkit, too, to be able to have somebody keep their identity and operate as a mega team and then be underneath the umbrella of Keller Williams. I mean, when you think of the overhead of with accountants and front desk people and and that staff, if you could be taking all that energy into production and leading your team and helping them get more productive... It, you can make up for that cost right. so quickly. So we are seeing um, a lot of times independent brokers really are what we call mega teams in our world. Right. So and vice versa within the world of KW, we have a lot of mega agents that almost operate like we call them independent brokerages. Mm-hmm. That right. they have they may have their own um, coach on staff. Right. Now teams that. Independent brokers that merge in with us, right. they should be utilizing the resources of leveraging the market center for the training and the coaching and things like that, rather right. than carrying that expense. Okay. So there are plenty of ways to cut costs by doing that cool. and reducing the liability. If you're sharing it yeah, with a pool <laughs> of so many agents yeah. versus a smaller office, right. it makes a lot of sense financially. Cool. That's how it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because you think about some of the companies that mm-hmm. offer that, like that capping model, where for a broker and you're running a team, but you still have that overhead, whether somebody closed or not. Mm-hmm. When you tie into a franchise well, as a team, then you don't necessarily have that. Right. Over here, just whatever office fees you have. Yeah. And it's interesting. Difference. I think um, there are some independent brokers that maybe if they've been out there for quite some time, right. they're, they're like, oh, I can have access to this technology or what have you. Right. Um, th- those prices on that technology is is increasing at a pretty good clip right. because th- there is a market for that, whereas... Right. When you're in our world, it's so much more cost effective to yeah. be able to share our platform right. and not have to bring on those extra costs. Okay. So I'm just curious as to, you know, like where you're headed in like the next five years and then going into like retirement. How does a broker retire? <laughs> Yeah. From your perspective. <laughs> or even an agent retired. Right. No, that's yeah. that's the whole idea, right? We want right. to fund our life. And at some point, you want to be able to wake up every day and, and do whatever you feel like. So right. um, first of all, where we're heading, uh, part of where I'm heading is actually where the entire industry is heading. Right. Um and it's by design. Really, there is a whole movement within the industry of providing an end-to-end you know, just whole experience for the um, for our clients, right. the user experience that they have a one stop shop. So we have relationships with right. title companies and and lenders and insurance companies, and really finding ways to um, be in business with them and offer the premium service so that clients can come somewhere and and get all, right. everything serviced. And the other idea is. 
versus thinking about real estate as a transactional business, really right. it's how are you in business for the life cycle with these clients. And that's right. that's really the language and the initiative we have when we're talking with our agents and our teams is that continuous relationship. Because right. you don't know exactly when everyone right. is going to have a real estate need. So it's staying in relationship with them throughout that entire process and providing value regarding their real estate investments that entire time right. versus just at the point of buying or selling a home. So an example would be checking in with your clients and when's the last time they updated their insurance. Think about this. People that bought their homes a year ago are underinsured. What's their house worth now versus what kind of insurance did they get? Look at the cost of building a home now. (laughs) And if they had to, is their replacement value up to date? Mm -hmm. So what great conversations that you're providing that value to your clients saying, hey, Have you talked to your insurance agent? So us having those relationships. So my job as an operating partner is making sure we're aligned with the right partners that can help us with that and bring a better service to our clients. Right. So those, the agents and the brokerages being, having those relationships will allow you to invest in those other companies possibly and have some type of retirement Mm -hmm. um, income coming in, even if you're not working. Correct. Is that... Yeah, that's the goal. I mean, that's um, that's my personal goal. And also what I'm hoping to help pour into our agents and instill in our agents. Um, We look at, Reggie, you're doing an awesome job leading an investment group like that. All of us should have multiple streams of income. And that's what we want to teach other people to do. Right. So... Um, with that being said, that's another beauty of this business is right. you have the ability to kind of flex up and down based on your life needs and demands at right. that point in time. And so I think my family would laugh if I ever said, oh, I plan to retire <laughs> on next date. They're like, yeah, right. No, right. I mean, I just I love it. I don't think of it as work. It's play. Right. Will I maybe do less of it at some point? I don't right. have a hard um, mm-hmm. target in my mind. Like on X date, I am done. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm right. um, I do. <laughs> I don't think realtors retire. No, I so think there are some, ways you can do things. Yeah, yeah. I think either realtors don't retire because they don't want to mm-hmm. or they can't. Mm-hmm. And those are usually the two reasons why. Just like the athletes. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like yep. when you, you lose your identity. That's what you've been doing your, the last 20 years of your life. So you just right. stop. And you become now. a coach. You become a sports <laughs> cast. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So. This is a real thing. So my mother passed away. A lot of the people who spoke at the funeral were her friends in business. But like all, since she was 18. Wow. Yeah. And I thought about it because at first I was like, man. Everybody that's going to be talking is going to be talking about Bobby as a realtor. You know right. what I mean? But that was what she did. Right. You know? <laughs> I yeah. mean, it, it, they talked about how good of a person she was. But at the same time, those are still all her friends and the, the people who've been around her the longest. So what was I right. going to do? But I think of a, a lot of us live that life or whatever. So, and it sounds like, too, what you're saying from... Um, the retirement standpoint for an agent is really pay attention to the other opportunities other than just going out selling. Yeah, absolutely. Investing in um, your insurance companies, your title companies and things of that nature. Yeah, create other streams of income, have rental properties. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, we coach and train our people. The first question you should ask on every listing appointment is, 
should I buy this house? Right. So you're walking in. If it's the right price, find a way. Go right. Buy it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that was a really good conversation. <laughs> Natalie, thank you for coming here. Oh, thank right. you for having me. It was so much fun. <laughs> All right. Do you have back. you have Instagram, Facebook, mm-hmm. and LinkedIn? Where can people reach you? Oh yeah, I'm uh, <laughs> yes and yes. <laughs> I'm on Facebook. Um, it's Natalie Peterlin Reed. My okay. maiden name is Peterlin. It's not hyphenated. It's just Natalie Peterlin Reed. Okay. And um, I think I'm Natalie Reed six on Instagram. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. So. Cool. All right. I gotta go find you. Well, <laughs> that's a wrap. It was a good show. All right. Definitely. Cool. <laughs>